Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream And you can holler Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't dictate it, is almost always the case. During my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas, from my personal mobile studio, which unfortunately today it remains my rented Chevy Cobalt, not because I was cheap, but that's because all Enterprise had the day that I needed it available. And uh, hopefully today I'll be getting the Jetta Diesel TDI back. We can only hope. All right, so let's get on with the show today. And uh, the reason I mentioned Personal Mobile Studio is this may be your first show you've ever listened to. And you may sometimes think, hey, sounds like that guy's in a car. That's because, you know what, that guy's in a car. That's right, a 50-mile commute, and I dictate this show to you Monday through Friday, five days a week. And uh, the way we start the show out is with an intro segment that I call Ask Clowns and Heroes. And, uh, of course, the ass clown came out of my constant condemning of our government, constant condemning of both sides of our government, Republicans and Democrats, or should I say Republicrats and Democans, or whatever they call it, and uh, my willingness to call the President of the United States, both the former and the present, an ass clown. And uh, because of that, I guess, most of my ass clowns have been politically based ass clowns. And that's just because, well, they're easy targets to pick on. This one's not really political. It is governmental, sort of. Uh, but this came into me yesterday, and it fits perfectly with today's topic, and I figured it would be a good ass clown change-up. And I swear to God, when you hear this, you're going to just go, what the hell is wrong with people? Especially people in our government, even though, again, this is really not a political governmental thing. There's no congressman to call over this. There might be a county commissioner or something if you live in Franklin County, Washington. But this is really more endemic of the stupidity and the dumbing down of human beings in the current society than it is government. Franklin County, Washington is deeply concerned because they produce an awful lot of uh, fruits and nuts commercially in orchards. All right, which I can understand, uh, and vineyards as well. It's a, it's a great place to grow grapes, wine, uh, you know, wine producing. Uh, I'm sorry, grapes, uh, nuts, and fruits. Just a wonderful place to do that. But they have problems with things like diseases and pests, like the codling moth. So instead of telling their residents, "Hey, look, don't be a contributor to the problem. Here's how you can make sure that the two or three trees that you have in your backyard are." contributing to the problem. Here's how to keep them disease and pest free. They're asking residents that own fruit trees to kill them. Okay, well, I'm asking you to go out and look at that useless, pointless, you know, Bradley pear, 
Bradford pear that doesn't produce pears, or you know that sterile um, gum tree or whatever doesn't produce anything useful, and plant you know a fruit tree or a nut tree or, or a grapevine or something that produces something useful. Franklin County, County is asking you to kill it so that you don't harm the commercial operations. Which I'm sorry, folks, but the the 50 acre orchard is contributing more to pest and disease than the guy with one or two trees in his backyard that actually can look after pretty well. But this gets worse. How the hell could it get worse? They're paying people to kill their trees. That's right. If you have an apple tree in Franklin County, Washington, I cannot believe how angry this makes me. Um, and you phone them up and ask them for details in advance for a certificate. You can then kill your tree and they'll give you a $50 uh, certificate so you can go to a local nursery and go buy yourself a sterile tree that produces nothing. Because that won't help the coddling moth kill the commercial operations plan. Folks, this is the stupidity that we're combating. We already have most of our nation planting useless trees with no consideration anything productive anymore. I'm trying to get people to replace 10% of those trees with something useful, and this county is paying people to cut them down. I don't know what else to say. So let's go on to something a little more positive, yet somber, and a little bit sad today. And that's our heroes of the day. Recently, we had our first international ass clown. I decided it was time for our first international heroes. I did not have to wait long or look far to see heroism across the sea. Uh, these heroes all come from different parts of the United Kingdom. They are serving alongside our soldiers in Afghanistan. And though I'd sure like to see that little theater closed down and wrapped up and see our boys come home, I sure respect and honor the men that serve there uh, because they didn't ask to go. They just did what they were asked to do. And that's something that I think if you haven't served, it's going to be very hard for you to understand. And those of you who are arrogant enough to put down the soldier in the name of putting down the actions of their government, if you haven't served, please shut your mouth because you don't know what the hell you are talking about. Well, what happened here is a gentleman named James Fullerton gave his life when an IED went off and as he was laying there dying instead of letting uh, their commander die, two men, one the name of Simon Ennis and one the name of Lewis Carter uh, rushed to his aid and tried to save him. And of course it was a set up ambush where they would wound one or two and those who came to try to save the wounded would be gunned down and that's what happened and the three of them gave their lives for their country and more so for the men next to them and that's why I tell you people to put down soldiers who have never served to shut your mouth and, and if that pisses you off don't listen to my show because you aren't going to like it all right. I mean, you're free to disagree with me at all, but I'll tell you what, if you, you put down soldiers, the, the men themselves, and you haven't served, you're not going to like anything I have to say, because I'm a soldier, and I served. And um, these guys are an example of, once you're there, once you're in harm's way, it's not about the politics back home, it's about the man beside you. And there is no sacrifice in the world equivalent to one human being willing to lay down their lives in the attempt to save another. That's what these guys are examples of. Salute to you, all three of you that are now on another place. And hopefully have found some happiness. And a salute to your family for being willing to send their sons off to fight a war in a far, foreign land. Thank you. All right, so now let's go on to the housekeeping. Number one, make sure you're supporting our advertisers. If it is... Um 
if it wasn't for them, it would take me a lot longer to get to a point where I could do this 24-7, 365, and make it my main line of work. Folks, that time is coming soon. I'm seeing it before we move to Arkansas. I'm seeing it this fall sometime. I will be able to make Survival Podcast a full-time effort thanks to your support with the Member Support Brigade and thanks to the support of our advertisers. Again, our advertisers are personal endorsements. They are not just people that showed up with a check and asked to uh, sponsor the show. They have to win my personal recommendation. If I won't do business with them, I won't put them on the site. And then the moderators check them out. First advertiser today is Tea Party Silver. Again, I own their coins. They're in my personal collection. I recommend that you get at least a couple or three of these things for yourself. Put them in a firebox. Put them with your Silver Eagles. Put them with whatever silver you collect. They are a gorgeous, beautiful coin. And they sell for not much over the, uh, the, the spot price of a Silver Eagle anyway. So you're getting the equivalent amount of extremely pure silver with a very beautiful coin commemorating when people stood up and said, I want my nation back. And then the next one is Ready-Made Resources. Ready-Made Resources is awesome. They have a huge assortment of stuff for the prepper industry, a huge assortment of 12-volt items for the solar enthusiasts, and I really encourage you, download their solar catalog PDF. Not only will you find a massive amount of material that's available for you to build your own solar systems, you will learn more than any book you can buy on solar about solar, how it works, and what to do with it. It is absolutely phenomenal. I'd pay 20 bucks for a copy of it. And it's absolutely free right there on their site. So I recommend that you go check it out. And that knocks out our housekeeping and our interest segment. Let's get on to our main topic today, which is going to be on primarily the layers and the zones of permaculture. This is something I've talked about before, but I thought it was a good idea to go into it again. It's very important that if you want to really build sustainable production in anything from a tenth of an acre backyard to a ten-acre parcel that you learn these layers and zones. Because even if you don't use all of them, by understanding them in their entirety, you'll be able to compensate for the ones that you don't use, if that makes any sense at all. Uh, As I go through them, maybe you'll start to see that, and I'll point out different parts where that is in fact the case. Let's start off by talking once again about just what is permaculture? What makes permaculture different from agriculture? Well, when I first started doing this show, my actually my understanding of permaculture was somewhat limited. Um, I really hadn't dug into it. I was actually applying a lot of the permaculture principles, which is maybe what we'll talk about tomorrow, um, without realizing that's what I was doing. In fact, some of the principles of permaculture were actually being used in the show um, in my core philosophy that I talk about all the time, even in areas that have nothing to do with agriculture. Tomorrow, maybe that will make more sense. But it, it stood to reason that because permaculture is nature, and it's nature being itself, and it's nature being encouraged to be itself by man. But when I first started talking about it here on the Survival Podcast, what I would say is anything that you plant that comes back over and over and over again without you having to do anything to it is a permaculture-type crop. And anything that you have to mess with over and over and over again to keep it come back, like let's say a tomato plant, is an agriculture crop. 
And to a degree that's accurate, but in a larger scheme of things it's completely wrong. Permaculture isn't just about perennial plantings. Uh, That's too one-dimensional, and it actually rules out annual plantings, which are part of a well-run permaculture system. Permaculture simply means a combination of the words permanent and agriculture. Also, permanent in culture is in permanent human culture. It is a method and a means by which you can live, which provides a sustainable environment for plants, animals, and men. And that sounds a lot deeper, and it is a lot deeper. And I don't want you to worry. I'm not going to flip out, turn into a Wiccan here today, and start talking about praying to the, uh, the the spirit of the earth. It's not like that. It's just a deep thought. If you really think about how connected we are to the planet, and how dependent upon the planet we are. Um, I don't care if you are a carnivore. And you never eat a salad in your life, and all you eat is red meat. Well, that red meat had to grow and turn into what it was, and that meant that it had to eat vegetation. And that vegetation had to take its nutrients from the sun and the ground. And for that to happen, other vegetation and other animal life had to die, decompose, and rot into the soil. And if you take anything out of that cycle, you will cease to exist. You cannot survive, and none of us can. And permaculture is a way of understanding that, and then stepping back and looking at the way nature does things, even when we're not involved, and realizing that, for instance, right now, I'm on Spur 408, if you know anything about North Texas, just about to merge out of Loop 12. Uh, I'm about to be surrounded by city, but right now I am surrounded by beautiful hillsides, beautiful green hillsides, full of trees and plants. Right now I'm looking at about probably a half of an acre of uh, Jerusalem artichokes, also known as sunchokes, which anybody that wants to could probably go over there and dig those up in another couple months once they put out tubers and get food for free. Now, nobody looks after them. Nobody takes care of them. All those trees, nobody looks after them. Nobody cares for them. We have really kind of rough soil around here, very clay-based. People are digging all kinds of things into it. But if I walk up into those trees right now and stick my hand down in the earth, it'll be rich, black, and crumbly. Nobody's composting there. Nobody's done anything there. It just is that way. And all that it took for it to become that way is 20 to 30 years with man not touching anything. That's it. And I'm looking at it, another little clump of these woods and going, those are 20 to 30 year old woods. They were probably cut bare for cattle in the past and over about 20 years ago as the city began to develop, the farmers moved out, the commercialization started and they just let the land go fallow and it healed itself. And in that environment, what I'm seeing are big trees, and they kind of slope down as they get closer to the edge. And all those Jerusalem artichokes were going right along the edge in the little field between the forest and the road. All of that's happening naturally. It's not even somebody cutting the ground, because if they were mowing that, those artichokes wouldn't be six foot high uh, and, and beautiful flowers right now, right? So that all happened by itself. So what permaculture says is, okay, that works. So let's step back and understand it and comprehend it. Once we do that, let's understand how man can, instead of interfering with it, encourage it and improve upon it. And it's not arrogant to think that we can improve upon nature. We do it all the time. 
What's arrogant is to think that we can outthink nature. These are two different things. So, in the first step of understanding, we have to look at that woodlot I just went by and say to ourselves, what's going on there? And people like Bill Mollison, who is the father of modern permaculture, and Jeff Lawton, who is, has done amazing things with permaculture, have worked and analyzed and come up with a basic seven layers that create that environment right there. That right now I could go back to that woodlot, and in addition to those sunchokes, I guarantee you there's food there. I could walk into that forest and I could start finding things to eat. Right here, right between Arlington and Dallas. Even though no one's touched it for 20 to 30 years, there's food there. And they said, okay, what are the things that make that possible? And they put together the seven-layer model. And in this model, we start out with layer one, which is the high canopy. The biggest trees in the forest. These are so important. And the first thing we do in our modern agricultural systems is we get out a chainsaw or a bulldozer and we level land and we get rid of all those big trees. We don't understand the value that they bring. Two things that they do are so important just in conserving water. Number one is they provide shade. Now, of course, if we're trying to grow a tomato or a pepper, shade can be a bad thing. But we'll get to that. That's the edge. But in the forest itself, that shade works wonders to prevent evaporation and loss of water. And number two, those trees are constantly dropping leaves. If they are trees that lose their leaves every fall, they drop all their leaves in the fall. But even if they're evergreens, they're constantly dropping pieces here and there as they grow and they shed lower-lying levels. And over years and years, they build up this massive level of natural mulch that is the forest floor. And when you walk into a forest and you stand on what you think is leaves and earth, you're actually standing on a lake, folks. Underneath your feet at any one time, in a dry part of the year, is about an inch deep of water everywhere if you were to extract it and press it out of the forest floor. In a moist time of year, you may be standing on a lake that's up to six inches deep for as far as the forest runs. Or more. Even when you don't see any water, even when it's not muddy and mucky, because that organic matter is so absorbent, and it holds so much water, and it goes so deep. And it conserves water so well, and it makes it available to the other plants. As you move further out toward the edge, you come into what are called the low tree level layer. Now, the low tree layer is often, as the forest is sort of growing outward, like a big organism, which is what a forest is. The trees that are further out to the edge are younger, so hence they're shorter. And that begins to cast a little bit less shade, and it makes room for the next layer to occur. But what I want you to understand is that in your backyard, you can recreate these layers by using specific types of trees. You could use full-size trees in a layer to make your canopy layer. And you could use semi-dwarf trees to make your low tree layer. All right? But let's take it another way. Let's say I've got a small yard. Well, you could use semi-dwarf trees to create your high canopy layer. And actual dwarfs, little bitty trees that never get high enough that you can't reach the top of them standing next to them, as your low tree layer. You can emulate this layer system at any scale that you choose to, and because it's a system, not a theory, it'll do its job. 
In fact, in a single season, a square foot garden with a trellis on one side with beans and peas and, and, and tomatoes climbing up the trellis and then going through your, your kind of your shorter plants to the front, even though that's all herbaceous and climbers, which we'll get to in a second, in reality it emulates the entire seven layer system. High canopy, low canopy, and you work out to the edge. It's the exact same thing. So if you start to understand this layer system, that's what I'm saying, you'll start to realize that even if I'm on a postage stamp lot, I can create it in miniature. And I can see it work in miniature, and that's almost magical if you really understand it. So your low tree layer is next. After your low tree layer comes your shrub layer. Now if you think about it, any time that you go up to a natural wood lot, if you try to get into it, and walk into it, walk through it, it's always the most difficult part isn't once you're in the middle of the woods. Then you can generally walk around. It's as you come from the edge where you go from field to woods, and there's all these tangles and vines and shrubs and brambles, and you've got to find a, an entry point through, or maybe even got to get a machete out and hack yourself an entryway point through. That's because right there at that edge is where your shrubs grow heavily. And that's when you go out and you look for wild blackberries. Often you'll go up on a mountain somewhere where they grow. There'll be a dirt road, and then there'll be an edge before it goes into the forest. And right on the side of the road, that's where those blackberries are. And what people think is, well, they're growing there because there's a road here, and that's the only place they can grow. No, folks, they're growing there because that's the perfect place for them. It might be man cutting the road that created the edge, but trust me, before there were any roads, they grew where the edge was then, too. That's where the shrub layer naturally occurs. So these are things like blackberries, blueberries, um, and any kind of bush that you want to put in, uh, things like gooseberries, currants, it doesn't matter, right? Because you are controlling what you're creating for yourself. So that shrub layer comes next. The other thing that's right there with the shrubs, usually kind of right in front of them. It's funny how nature creates this pattern if we just leave her alone. Will be that herbaceous layer. Now when I just drove by all those sunchokes, those Jerusalem artichokes, about four miles back here now, that was a herbaceous layer. That's exactly what that was. And I guarantee you, just to the other side of them, right before I would have went into that forest, we would have had a shrub layer. For you, the herbaceous layer is a lot of your annual crops and a lot of your herbs that are annual, but they'll become perennial if you let them go to seed and reseed themselves. So this is everything from like parsley, dill, um, oregano, rosemary, all of your, your herb crops. And including things like your vegetables, your, your peppers, uh, your cucumbers, your onions, your lettuces, your spinaches. Everything that fits in that realm of things that never really grow into a bush or a tree or a vine is part of your herbaceous layer. And folks, there is some overlap. Don't always try to segment things out from one to the other because you're about to see some overlap here uh, in just a second. Because the additional layer that's there in addition to the herbaceous layer is the rhizomal layer. So a rhizome is anything that really grows below the surface and spreads that way. So a potato or a sweet potato would be a rhizome. A hop root that extends itself out from the ground through roots uh, to grow hops, which are a vining flower that we use to make beer, is a rhizomial layer because it's growing and ex expanding beneath the surface. I would say a carrot is a rhizome. 
All right, but does that mean that the upper portion of those plants is not also herbaceous? No, of course it's herbaceous. So you have something like, again, let's say potatoes growing under the ground. Okay, well, their upper foliage, even though you don't use it for, for your personal use, is now still part of the herbaceous layer. Insects and animals will use it. You'll cut it down. You'll compost it. It'll go back to the soil. So that, that kind of bridges the gap between those two layers. And uh, the next one is also true as well as being something that bridges the gap, and that's the vertical layer or the climbers and vines. So if we plant something like rattlesnake pole beans at the edge layer and allow them to climb up a dwarf tree that's out at, out at the edge, what is that? Well, it's herbaceous because it is a herbaceous type of plant. But it's a vertical because it's occupying space climbing up into the canopy, which is a very simple permaculture technique. All right, So that's where those two overlap. And then the other layer that's extremely important for a permaculture system work is a soil surface layer. A soil surface layer is anything that grows outwardly and horizontally and actually covers the ground and acts as a natural mulch. The, the most common example of something that people like to grow that fills this need is the strawberry plant. Sending out runners and constantly getting bigger and bigger and bigger and being a mat that actually helps hold moisture into the ground out in the edge and out closer to the residence where you live without having a lawn. Right? You don't need a lawn if you have a huge strawberry patch. Because that strawberry patch will stay low to the ground. It'll help preserve and build the soil and it'll provide you food. So those are your seven layers of permaculture. And like I said, it's important to understand them because you can recreate them at any scale that you want. One way that you might do this is you might even say, look, my yard is way too small even for semi-dwarf trees. All I'm going to have are dwarf trees. That's as big as I can go. So what you would do is you would go plant using the sun and making sure that you give the most solar exposure to your edge, right, so that your trees that are taller can, can be... Uh, behind the primary solar exposure so that they're not casting shadows onto your, your vegetable garden, so to speak. And you plant several dwarf trees, very small trees, grow five to five to eight feet tall only. Maybe they're even trees that will grow up to 12 feet tall, but you prune them down to that level so that you don't upset your neighbors or what have you. Out in front of them, you can actually then just go straight to the shrubs. Right Now, it's not the same but it'll still work. So you go to a shrub layer. Maybe you plant some blackberries. Maybe you plant some raspberries. Maybe you plant some blueberries, gooseberries, currants. And from there, coming forward, you go ahead and you start planting something like, um, you, you know, your herbaceous plants. Maybe even further back from the edge, you go ahead and plant your vegetable garden. And you start to create that system. And what happens is you start to get a lot of symbiosis there. And things start to interplay and work. Your, your yard should not look, if you really want a permanent producing system for yourself, it should not look all perfectly tidy and arranged. It should be beautiful, but it should be beautiful the way it is when you go out into the forest. And you stand in a natural field full of wildflowers, and that's beautiful. But it's not perfectly arranged and organized. And all you're doing is taking that chaos 
and adding a little bit of the hand of man to it without going crazy, knowing when to stop. And if you build a system like that, what will happen is it will start to draw in all sorts of wildlife and insects and birds. And a lot of the pest problems and disease problems that you have will eventually start to go away. And if you pay attention to them and as they pop up, you address them individually very quickly with natural methods, the system will get stronger and stronger and stronger. It's a system that actually takes a lot more work initially to get going the way that you want. But once you have it into its second or third season, it becomes a living organism onto itself, and all you're doing is replanting your annual plantings. And it will, to a large degree, look after and take care of itself. And that's a reality that you can create for yourself. The other thing I'd like to talk to you about today is what's called zones. Now, a lot of times when people are learning about permaculture, they get a little bit confused between zones and layers. Layers are what I just talked about for most of the show. They are the plantings themselves, the trees, the bushes, the shrubs, the climbers, the, the ground cover, things like that. Zones have very little to do in actuality with what's planted there, though if you follow them, you're going to end up with natural things occurring like your canopy layer probably being part of zone 5 and your herbaceous layer pulled off the edge that you caretake every day with your, you know, your your your, what am I looking at? Your, your kitchen vegetables. Uh, I was looking for that term. That's an English term and I couldn't think of it. But your kitchen vegetables will probably be in zone one. Because here's how this works. When you stand at your door and you look out onto your property and you, and you take one step out the door, you're in zone one. The further you get away from that door, the further you progress up in zones two, three, four, and eventually five. Right. Zone 1 is the area where you do the most work. You have the most interaction. You do the most, let's say, uh, irrigation that you actually do. You go out and water your plants or turn on your drip system or even have an electric system that's out there uh, turning that system on for you or not. But there's human activity is highest in Zone 1. And this is why your vegetable garden should be located very close to your door. Your either back door, your side door, your front door, whatever side of the house you're working on, your vegetable garden should be very close. You should not put your vegetable garden way off in a corner somewhere where you can't see it. You should have it close where it gets tended, it gets looked at every day. Every morning that you walk out with your cup of coffee, you're looking at it, you're tending it, and you're taking care of it. As you move into zone two, you're moving further out. You start to move into, you know, your your shrub layers, right? As you go further out into the zones, and the plants that need less looking after. And, and it, you might not have a full five layers at your home. You may not have a layer five. Because layer 5, but I recommend that you do have a little tiny layer 5 somewhere. Layer 5 is where you do absolutely nothing. It's completely, totally wild and left alone. And you can do that to a degree even on a suburban lot. Now, you might have to eventually kind of pop things and not let them grow much higher, but you can have a little clump back by the fence where you don't mow, you don't cut, and if it's shaded because you've built your bigger trees back there, you're not going to have grass growing up 80 feet tall. And it doesn't have to be a big area to matter. It will be a refuge for small animals, for little creatures, for insects, and things like that. 
And that's all that layer system is, is ever, or all that zone system is. There, I did it myself. As you move out from the residence, you go higher up in the zones, and you have less human activity at each one of them. So I know we're a little bit shorter than normal today, but I'm going to kind of start to wrap up here. Um, But there is some homework that I have for you today. This is what I want you to do throughout the rest of the week and through the weekend this, this week. I want you to go to as many parks and woodlots and places where people don't cut things down and trim things all the time as you can find this week. And I want you to identify the seven layers. I want you to find the canopy, the low tree, the uh, shrub layer, the herbaceous layers. Now, there's not going to be peppers and tomatoes there, but there's going to be plants that make up the herbaceous layer. I want you to see if you can identify plants that might be rhizomial. Don't, don't, don't start digging stuff up where you're not supposed to. Just understand, there's stuff growing under your feet. I want you to find the soil surface layer. Look for the stuff that's just crawling on the ground. It's not grass. right? The, the natural um, things like wild strawberry. And, and you'll find all types of different plants that make up this layer. And I want you to look for the climbers, the, the vertical layer, the vines. Uh, these can be anything from brambles and stickers to wild grapes and muscadines. And find those layers. See them. See them working in nature. I don't want you to do anything with them. I don't want you to go If you find stuff you want to take home and eat or forage for, that's fine. But that's not my assignment to you. My assignment to you is to simply go look and observe, interact, comprehend, understand what's happening even when no one's there. And start to say to yourself, if I own this piece of land right now, how could I improve it? What would I remove? What would I replace it with? How would I increase the irrigation here? Where could I put in a swale? What's the contour of the land like? And if you're not familiar with swale systems, I'm going to talk about those a bit tomorrow. Because I'm going to continue on with the permaculture thing. It's helping me get ready for Dirt Time 09, where I'm going to be talking about gardening and permaculture out there. But look for, you know, where could I increase, you know, uh, harvesting water here? What would I do if I owned this 10 acres or 2 acres or 50 acres or 1 acre? What would I do with it? How would I shape it? How much of this that's been created without man would I just leave alone? Where would I locate that? Where would I, where would I create a swath, a strip of land, and say, not only am I not going to touch this, but as long as I have anything to say about it, no one is ever going to touch this swath of land. And what would you do as you built out from there? Where would your zone 1 be? Where would your zone 2 cutoff be? Where would zone 3 be? Where would zone 4 be? And where would that natural zone 5 that never gets touched be? If you start to look at things that way, then there's something that's a constant in the human psyche that gets so overlooked that I don't understand why. Because once you realize it's there, you see it in everything. And that's that everything repeats itself. Everything is redundant. Everything that you observe and see somewhere else is a pattern mimicking some other pattern. There is nothing really original out there other than the base of nature. We sit and we look at, you know, we talked today about the seven layers of, of permaculture, and we talked about how a, a, a forest has a high canopy layer, a low canopy layer, a herbaceous layer, a ground cover layer, underground, and a climber. All right? You tell me that a large modern city doesn't look exactly the same way, with large skyscrapers in the center, going down to smaller buildings, branching out into suburbs that, that look like a herbaceous layer. 
with underground infrastructure and bridges that span gaps acting as climbers. You tell me there's anything original that nature hasn't already built and done a better job of. There's nothing. And if you start to see the patterns, then you'll realize, holy crap, a city's looked like that my entire life. No one ever told me and I didn't see it. How could I possibly not notice that a city is built exactly like a forest? They're entirely different. One's all about nature. And one's about the destruction of nature. One produces food and one produces waste. But the structure is almost the same. A canopy down to an edge. And eventually, the city breaks off into an edge. And the most life in the city, the most natural life in the city, is at its edges where it touches a parkland and there's that natural piece that strip in between where the grass is mowed and where the concrete stops that's where the most life is and if you get to the outskirts of the city and you get past all the suburbs and you get to another edge before it goes totally wild then you have a bridge between where man exists and where only nature exists in that bridge, in that edge is where the most life is and folks, in a forest do you know where the life is? the most life, it's not deep in the dark forest, it's at the edge. It's the edge habitat. It's where those bushes and climbers and low trees and high trees all come together and make that edge. That's where the life is. It's everywhere. It's around you right now. You're looking at it. You know the AT&T commercial where everywhere they look, they see the bars descending down. It could be light poles. It could be buildings. It could be where the pattern is everywhere. They're ripping off this concept. That pattern is everywhere. It's in your life right now. You're seeing it somewhere. Examine it, understand it. Once you understand it, then you can manipulate it and control it. Then you can harness it. And then you can learn to not only manipulate and control and harness, but on some levels to let it go and let it be what it is. That will bring you more success in producing a permanent producer on your own property or even doing it with Kerala Gardening somewhere else, which is probably something else we should talk about later. But I think that wraps it up today. I just wanted you to understand that. I wanted you to get that out of this episode, that that pattern, that seven layers, is the original pattern to create life. And it exists across our planet from a woodlot to something as ridiculous as the center of a city. Understand it, grasp it, and harness it, and that'll help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler, it really doesn't matter cause it all gets spent.